0: All of us want to be happy, and none of us want to experience misery And yet, when we're not clear on what causes happiness and what causes misery Then we live our lives in such a way as if we are deliberately trying to create the cause of misery Because our minds are under the influence of ignorance Then attachment, resentment, jealousy, pride All these things come very easily into the mind And we tend to follow whatever thought comes to the mind Something pops in the mind that says I like this, I don't like that And we follow it without really taking care and checking, Well, where did this thought come from? What kind of motivation made this come into the mind? And what will be the long-term result of this thought or this action? So we usually don't bother to see our actions in the perspective of where they arose from, and what they lead to. But instead, something comes in the mind, and we just follow it. And because our minds are ignorant, and we're strongly habituated with afflictions, then we tend so often just to follow all sorts of impulsive thoughts that lead to, who knows, Where? And so it's important to observe the mind, observe the motivations Where did they come from? What did they lead to? And in that way, to make suitable choices About what we do in our lives Rather than just follow Impulsive, spontaneous thoughts And so here we're really trying to Continuously cultivate The bodhicitta motivation Because it's It comes from a good place It comes from love and compassion It comes from connection and affection that is spread equally to sentient beings. And it leads to enlightenment and being able to be of great benefit. So even though our bodhicitta is artificial and cultivated with lots of effort now, still Something quite useful, quite beneficial to generate in our mind. And one day it will be spontaneous. So let's take a minute and generate that bodhicitta motivation. Okay, so we're going to talk about the oral tradition and it becoming a written tradition. Okay, so like I've been saying before that the Deepavamsa, that's the name of the Sri Lankan chronicle, that said that the uh, Pali scripture was written down in the first century B.C., because of the loss of living beings, and it could have been due to invasions or to famine, or uh, it's also said that there was one scripture, and only they could only find one monk who knew it by heart. So they figured they better write some of these things down, because if that one monk died, then that whole scripture is lost. So they they uh, started writing things down. Now that's the that's the recorded. Historical thing that we have, but when uh, some of the scholars have done research, uh, they think that, you know, uh, things very well could have been written down beforehand. There were two prominent scripts in, in ancient India in the BC years. One was called Kuroshti, and the other was Brahmi. Okay, so Kuroshti is K H A R O S T H I. And it was derived from Aramaic and it was used in the Persian Empire and in uh, Gandhara and northwest India before King Ashoka's time. Yeah. And then the Bra- Brahmi script was also used in India before uh, Ashoka's time. And it seems like that one was brought from the west, maybe even as far... As where the Semitic tribes were Uh, Because it seems like it somehow Maybe has some influence from Semitic languages And it was um, You know, influenced or brought from the West By different traders who came into India Um, Okay, so both of those written scripts were, Were used at the You know, even before King Ashoka So you know, it's quite possible that things were were written down in India itself, that it didn't wasn't in in Sri Lanka that things were first written. And uh I talked to one friend and he said that he thinks, yeah, that things must have been written down because some of the uh you know, the Buddha's disciples came from the castes where surely they were literate and uh, you know, know whether they would have written the whole canon down or just taken some notes. You know, it's another thing. But, um, you know, it's quite possible. Okay. Now, the, the thing is that writing down the Dharma really affected things quite a bit. Now, before... Let's just step back for a minute. Before it was written down, there was this tradition of what they call banakas. Um, and those were the oral reciters. And so at the time of the first council after the buddha's parinirvana uh you know upali recited the vinaya ananda uh, recited the sutras and then um, they divided up certain groups uh to to learn certain scriptures by heart so it was uh, upali and all of his disciples it was their responsibility to learn all the vinaya things now, of course, the Vinaya wasn't cast in concrete then. There was stuff that was added on later, even after the Buddha's parinirvana. But they, you know, were responsible for carrying it on. And it, you know, what's interesting is in our Bhikshuni research, sometimes, you know, the question comes up was, well, was everything that is recorded in the Vinaya, did it actually even come from the Buddha? Because, like we were talking about, the the eight Garudharmas and, you know, they aren't referred to in any other place except in the, this first story about Mahaprajapati's ordination and some of them presuppose the existence of things that didn't exist at that time. You know, so it, it's hard to say exactly, you know, where, when everything entered. Okay, but in any case, there were, there were certain disciples who were in charge of doing that. And then in the, in the sutra part of the Pali Canon, they had the, the long discourses, the medium discourses, the abbreviated discourses, the numerical discourses, and then this fifth one, what was it called? Kanduka? Something, I don't know how that translates. But anyway, they gave, you know, one of them, I think, maybe it was the Diga Nikaya, the lengthy, the long discourses, that was given to Ananda and his disciples to memorize. And the Majima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses, that might have been given to Mahakish um, to you know, and his disciples to memorize. And then, you know, the next one was given to another group. Or no, maybe Majima might have been given to Shariputra, and, um, you know, the... The other one, the connected, that's what it's called, the third one is the connected. Uh, that might have been given to Makashapa. Anyway, Chariputra and his his disciples, Makashapa and his disciples, and Nanda and his disciples, they all got some of them, and then some other bhikshus and their disciples got, got other ones of them. But it's hard to say exactly when all these sutras were categorized into these different mikayas. You know, because they were just recited there at, at that that first council with the 500 arhats. And did they systematize them then and say which ones go into which nikayas? Or, you know, how this all came about and over what period of time, no one really knows. You know, the same thing I was saying about the pratimoksha. you know, kind of when all the vows came together and... I mean, certainly there was something that was recited every two weeks that the Sangha was reciting during the Buddhist time. but you know, were all the, the precepts at that time categorized into the different classifications that I described? You know, it doesn't seem like it, but maybe, and when they got classified classifi- classified, you know, we don't really know. Okay, but anyway, the the basic thing is that the chief disciples were on top of this whole thing. You know, they weren't just going to let everything, kind of everybody say whatever they say and do whatever they do because they knew that would bring bring about dispersion and degeneration. Okay, so things were passed down orally. You know, just from one generation to the next, one teacher to disciple to their disciple to their disciple. And this was very much in the ancient Indian tradition where also the Vedas were passed down orally. There was so much respect for the oral tradition, the power of, of the word. So writing it down was a big change. Yeah. Because when you have these banakas, these, these, um, or banakas, I don't know which syllable is, is emphasized. When you had them, then, you know, once they had systematized the various sutras within the ones that were in their purview, then, you know, people couldn't change it very much. Yeah. And there were probably a few of the oral reciters who had alternative recitations, but, you know, they were more or less kept in check because there was a pretty standard group. And so every once in a while they would have these uh, Sangeetis, these mass recitations where they would come and recite everything and then say, Yes, this is what we follow, you know, and it seemed <coughs> that this happened at, at each of the major councils that they had in the early years. So um, by writing things down, it began to change because all of a sudden these Banakas uh, didn't have, uh, they weren't in control of the whole show anymore because now there were the scribes writing things down. Okay. Now, when the has recited everything, you know, okay, remember we talked before about how they, they had certain... Um, what was the word I used? Uh, kind of formulas for different things, you know? And so when they recited it, you know, it was very systematized. They would all use these formulas, even if something... Uh, were repeated over and over and over again in the sutra, they would recite the whole thing out, even if it was just a change in one word. Because maybe sometimes, like the Buddha would talk about the five aggregates, and he would talk about them being impermanent and the nature of suffering and without a self, and he would just change what the name of the aggregate was, you know, in each sentence. Uh, so, but everything, the whole sentence would get recited even if there was only one word difference from one to the next, okay, or one paragraph to the next, the whole thing would would be like this. Nothing was abbreviated because it was all learned by memory and systematized like this. Well, when they started writing things down, then, you know, the scribes didn't want to write, you know, everything down and you just changed one word. So then they began to have these abbreviations, yeah, where they would just... You know, kind of indicate it's the same as the preceding sentence, except this word changed. Or the same as the preceding paragraph, except this, this phrase or this word changed. She began to have abbreviations. And if you read in the Pali Canon, you know, there's all these abbreviations like this. If you read in the Mahayana Canon, you don't find many abbreviations. Because remember I was saying there, it's written like a literary composition with lots and description, and the, the canon is very, very, the sutras are very long. And that's because they, they appeared at the time when there was writing. So you could have these lengthy things without a lot of repetition because they weren't passed down by memory quite as much. Okay? So you had the abbreviations start. Also, it became easier for mistakes to be made. Uh, It's interesting because sometimes when you think that things are written down, you would think less mistakes would be made. So in one way, you know, if you think about it, well, yes, it's less mistakes because it's written and this is the way it is. You know, you can't just forget one word in your oral recitation and. You know, go, go on to the next thing because it's all written down. But on the other hand, when you had scribes copying it, you know, because everything was copied by hand and didn't have Mimeo machines or, you know, press you know, know, send it out to a massive email list or something like that. It was all written by hand. So then, you know, the scribe, if, if there were two letters that looked similar, you know, and the scribe was copying it, it, they could get them confused and write down the wrong letter, you know. Or there was also this thing in in the language where they had double consonants that weren't initially written and then long and, and short vowels which weren't originally written, but you could tell when they were spoken. And very often you could tell when you were writing it which vowel or which consonant, single or double or long or short, it should be. But in some cases, it might have been ambiguous. And then the scribe just has to kind of guess which one it was. So that was, you know, a chance to, some meanings could have accidentally been changed that way. Or you come to the end of the line and there's a certain word, and there's that certain word at the end of another line, five lines down. Uh, but when your eye goes back to copy it, instead of see this one, you see the lower one, and so you start copying something, and you miss out five lines. Okay, so there's possibility for more errors to come in with with the writing. Um, other kinds of things happened. Uh, it and it's interesting. This scholar thought that it would be easier to insert text with new ideas. Um, in written things. Okay. Because when they had the Banakas who were all reciting everything, when everybody recited it together, if you were slipping something in, you would be out of sync with everybody else and it would be picked up. Okay. But if you were writing something and you just thought that some other idea would go in well, you know, you put it in. Yeah. Or you clarify something. There's something you're writing it down and you just clarify it. I mean I know when when I uh transcribe some of my teachers' writings, especially if their English isn't very good, I'll rearrange the sentences and I'll even rearrange the paragraphs or substitute different vocabulary for what I consider to be clearer. So maybe I make it clearer, but then also I'm I'm more ignorant, so maybe I make more confusion too. You know, it's it's kind of a, more of a grab bag. Grab bag when you have uh, um, things written down in that way, it could be clear. They could be more confused. You don't really know. Okay. Um, what other effects could be? Let's see. Um, it, that you know what was happening also at that time like the, you know, the first century B.C. and the, the initial centuries A.D., was things were moving more and more into Sanskrit. Okay, We don't really know what language the Buddha spoke. Some people say Prakrit, maybe kind of a vernacular language that was very calm. Some people say he spoke Pali, but... It, he may not have. Pali may also have been a, a language that that developed over time, you know, with writing. It's it's really hard to say. In any case, things were getting more Sanskritized. So even though in Sri Lanka they were reciting the canon in Pali by that time, because Sanskrit had become the language of the literary class there was more and more emphasis to maybe try and translate things from Pali into Sanskrit even though the two languages are actually incredibly similar you know I mean they're very very similar and you, you can you can look and 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 see you know kind of how things are spelled slightly differently but you, you can just tell it's a thing of spelling and anyway in any case writing down, the Pali canon stopped that Sanskritization uh, process. But, you know, in the early canon, like we said, we don't know what language the Buddha spoke, and were things translated into Pali, and were they translated from Pali into Sanskrit? And it seems, uh, Tupton Jimbo was telling me that he had heard that there was some evidence that things were actually translated like from Sri Lankan, you know, the, the Singhalese language, into Pali. You know, because they were being, you know, some of the commentaries and different things were being learned in in the, you know, language in Ceylon. So, you know, there's a lot of different theories, and nobody really knows for sure. Okay, Um, but it did stop the the Sanskritization of the of the of the of the Pali. Okay, and it it could have been that uh, you know, like I was saying, there could there before there might have been variant recitations of of certain sutras. You know, like by and large, the Banakas agree, but a certain few may have had their own variances. Well, some of these may have uh, if a scribe was writing something down and had a question and asked one of these Banakas uh, you know, to clarify it and he was from one of the other uh, ways of reciting it, then one of these other ways, the variant ways of of the scripture could have been inserted into the into the written scripture. So it's hard to say. It seems like um, that after thing the Canon, at least was written down, that some things weren't totally concretized, but there wasn't a whole lot of massive change after that okay so in in one way it really helped stabilize things in another way um okay having uh back to the thing about about writing and you know us not really knowing you know when the writing appeared and, uh, you know, like I was saying, His Holiness had the theory that some of the Mahayana Sutras were just spoken to a small group of people who may have taken notes or may have, you know, and written something down and passed it down privately just in small groups until Nagarjuna found those texts. You know, we don't really know. But what's interesting is in the Vinaya, there's not much, there's nothing written about writing, either saying you should do it or you shouldn't do it. And you would think that if writing were really prominent, that somehow there would have been some kind of guidelines set up about it, because, you know, there were guidelines about everything else (laughs) in, in one's life. Yeah. On the other hand, at the end of the Vinaya, at the end of the of the appendix of the Vinaya, Which is called the Parivara. There's two mentions of writing, and one of the mentions, it said these eight sections are written in a manner for recitation. That's interesting to say that they're written in a manner for recitation. (laughs) Yeah, and then um, and then also at the end, it it says that uh, deep. Deepanama, uh, had it written down. So, you know, was this stuff that was added when it was finally written down? It was, the Vinaya was all oral, and then when it was written down, they added those two comments? You know, that's what some scholars think. But I think it might be interesting to do some more research on this. And it might be interesting, because not enough research has been done, to look at other Vinayas besides the Pali. The Pali has been very well studied, I think in part because the Theravadas rely a lot on the Vinaya. I mean, that's one of the main things they study. Um, but also because uh, it was, you know, when Colonel Alcott and all these other Brit- British people went to Sri Lanka and encountered Buddhism, they... You know, the Pali Text found, uh, Society was begun, and so all the canon was, you know, written out with It was Pali, but it's written out in Roman letters. So then, West, you know, Western people and universities could read it. They could read the Pali. Whereas, you know, the Mahayana canon, you know, the Mahayana canons, I should say, are much faster I don't think they've all been written out in in Roman letters. I don't know. Maybe they have. So in terms of Western scholarship, you know, I don't think nearly as much has been done because the size of the canon and because the whole process of writing Sanskrit out in Roman letters. There are certain things certainly that happen because Western scholars have studied the Sanskrit. Um, the canons have been cha- translated into Chinese, so maybe there's some Chinese scholarship on this. But then it appears, like with the different Vinaya traditions, that some of them may have been younger, you know, and some of them older than others. Um, you know, some people say that the Mula which is the one that's followed in Tibet, that it has uh, it's more elaborate on many issues and so that seems to be an, an indication that there was more time to add stuff and you know there were questions that came up and so to answer those questions then they added stuff but nobody really knows okay But this is just some of the theories that are that are out there that could account for some of the differences yeah. And and it's interesting, you know, when we were doing some of this bhikshuni research um, that that weekend, we had a weekend here where our Western uh, committee of bhikshunis was translating from Chinese and Pal Sanskrit and everything else, you know, and looking. We were looking just at the story of Mahaprajapati's ordination and the ordination of the of the five hundred women. And there were just variations in the different recorded vinayas. Yeah, and just on this one story, there was a lot of similarity, but there were some variations too. Yeah, and uh, so it's interesting, and, and then variations on the whole topic of who can who can give the big ordination. And, and, you know, and so all of this, it's interesting, actually influences what's happening now, because we have to find the antecedents for whatever we're proposing. And yet this is stuff that was written down centuries ago, and we don't know what was going on with the scribes, or, you know. Yeah, because it's, it's quite interesting now, even you're reading, uh, you know, when the Tibetan lamas will give a lung. It's fascinating to watch it, because here you have a lung in a, a scripture, you know, that is written down and published on a printing press in India. So it's not the, the woodblock scriptures. It's published on a printing press in India, and there are many typos and, you know, they'll be reading, giving the oral transmission, and they'll stop and make corrections because it's not making sense. And there's a knot where there shouldn't be a knot, and there's not a knot where there should be a knot. And so they're correcting it right there as they read it. So who knows what went on centuries ago? Yeah. Or sometimes one of the lamas will be giving the oral transmission from one... Um, Version of the text, you know, published in one year and another person in the audience will be following along reading the text from when it was published at another time and, you know, one of them has an error where the other one doesn't and they're correcting each other. So this is nowadays. Who knows what happened, you know, what was going on before in terms of making corrections and things getting left out or added. You know, we we don't know. I asked one Tibetan Lama about this one time, you know, because, you know, in the Bodhisattva vows, they say say it so strictly, you know, I mean, it's like a root vow to break it if you say that something the Buddha taught is not the word of the Buddha, you know. So, uh, on the other hand, I think it would be just as negative karma to say that something that is not the word of the Buddha, is. You know? I mean, both of them are pretty potent karmically. So I asked this one, you know, couldn't they have made mistakes? And he said, when they were copying, and he said, yeah, but we don't know which ones they are. Mm -hmm. So we just say it's all accurate. But you don't know, do you? I mean, but I mean, I think the final proof of the pudding is: does it work to tame your mind? Okay, if it works to tame your mind, good enough for me. Okay, so I think that's the the bottom line in all these things. But I'm I'm just saying this because for some people it becomes a really big issue. You know, you'll find in the Asian communities these things are very big issues, and and yet you know we don't really know. And you'll find in, in like, Sutra Alankara, or, uh, you know, some of, of a Sangha's text, there's this incredible, and Deva also, um, in Shiksha Samuchaya, uh, saying, you know, refuting the position of the people who say that the Mahayana texts are not the word of the Buddha. Yeah. So there's all this discussion going on in the A.D. centuries, in ancient India, over what's the word of the Buddha? Yeah, so I, I find that, that quite interesting. But like I said, for me, the proof of the pudding is if it helps to tame your mind, good enough for me. But this is just if you find it in these different texts, and it seems to be a big issue, this is why. You know? Okay. Because I know when I first heard this, you know, huh? Mm-hmm. You know, why, is he, why are you talking about this? So Help me understand it um, Okay Then some uh, other effects Of writing things down Is that now you could have Commentaries Okay So uh, you know If things are just passed down orally you couldn't really write a commentary because you would have your own commentary. But could you read... I mean, think about it, you know, just how we discuss... Like, I'm giving a teaching right now. Could I remember it word by word to recite it afterwards? Could any of you remember it word by word to <laughs> recite it after- You know, it's hard to... Re- you couldn't really do a commentary, okay? But once you have writings, uh, written word, then people could write commentaries. Yeah. So this was you know, really a change that you saw happening in, in the A.D. centuries was the advent of all these commentaries written down. And then that, of course, really spurred a lot of the debating that was going on. Okay? Um, to, to, to really uh, you know, uh, refute the non-Buddhist schools. Then, then, of course, the debating that happened between the various Buddhist schools. Okay, and then uh, and then, like I said before, how the Sanskrit um, or how the Mahayana was written down in Sanskrit in a much more literary fashion, and so it allowed for this whole different style of writing and a whole different style of how the sutras appeared because they were being written. Yeah, if you look at the Avatamsaka Sutra. You know, the English translation is... I don't think my fingers are actually big enough to go like this. I mean, it's enormous and in small print. I mean, I guess somebody could have memorized it word by word, but wow, you know? So, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure some people memorize these things, but... So that, that, you know, it, it really started changing things.